0: I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, we'll be reading, uh, considering together this morning, verse 6 through chapter 3, verse 6. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before reading uh, his word. My Father, we thank you for a divine truth. That in your great condescension you have given us this great deposit uh, that we are charged with submitting to, uh, looking to as our authority for all of life and practice. We ask for the work of your Holy Spirit this morning. For without him these are just words upon a page. So may we acknowledge uh, our need for the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Judges 2 beginning in verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals in the Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them yet they did not listen to their judges for they hored after other gods and bowed down to them they soon turned aside from them from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord and they did not do so whenever the Lord raised up judges for them the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, "...because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died." In order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal, Hermon, as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which He commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites." And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Now, if you'll remember the passage that we considered together last week, it was a passage that started out with the death of Joshua. It transitioned into positive signs as the children of Israel then sought the direction of the Lord. We read there that he was with the tribe of Judah, giving them victory. And so things begin well after the death of Joshua as they transition into this new phase of life. But then the narrative pointed out the many ways in which the children of the Lord failed to keep covenant with their God, not only by offering half hearted obedience to him, but by forsaking that covenant and entering into covenant relationship with the people of the land. Now, the first question that might come to your mind from the text this morning is that if Joshua died back in chapter 1, verse 1, well, what is he doing here again in verse 6 of chapter 2, dismissing the people to the land? Well, some liberal theologians have said that this is clear evidence of a redactor. That is, an editor that came along at a much later date, hundreds of years later, and altered the text himself. Apparently, he had no idea that Joshua had died already in chapter 1, and so he wrote his own introduction here in chapter 2. Well, I think that's a bunch of nonsense. I think what we have, very simply, is a two-part introduction that really lays for us some very important groundwork... To help us understand why and to help us understand how things deteriorate so badly throughout this book of Judges. And so as we understand more the deterioration of God's people, we need to allow this text to expose our own hearts and the tendencies that we have to the same type of rebellion that we see in the children of Israel so that we might see our own need For the grace of the great king, the Lord Jesus, who longs for his people to worship him with all of life. commentator, Dale Davis, uses a vivid illustration to help us understand the importance of of these introductory chapters. You know how you might visit a national park, well, maybe not for a couple more weeks. (laughs) Let's say it's the site of a a battle uh, during the Civil War. You're not sure where to start. It looks like an empty field with a bunch of mounds of earth. And so you do what any good tourist does. You stop at the visitor center in which there's a film reenacting the battle that happened on that site. There's some artifacts that were excavated that are there on display. And there's a map that you can take with you to outline for you how the battle unfolded and where things happened. These early chapters in the book of Judges provide, if you will, that necessary preview in order to understand what is to happen in the rest of the book. And so in this book we have the Lord, the faithful God, the one who relentlessly pursues his people to retrieve them from their own stupidity. And yet they persist in rebellion. Our text this morning serves the purpose of providing broad brush strokes... ...revealing to us three crucial things that we find in the rest of the book of Judges. The overarching problem of the people of the Lord, their pattern of unfaithfulness, and the Lord's response. So let's consider each of those in turn this morning. First, the overarching problem here of the people of God. Now we read in verse 6 that the people are dismissed to enjoy the inheritance from the Lord... Now it is vital that as they go to take possession of this land that they understand this is a blessing from God as an inheritance. Now an inheritance, of course, is a gift. It's something that is received because of the hard work of another. If you receive an inheritance from a beloved family member, there's a certain level of responsibility on your part. Responsibility to be grateful, to be humble, to be good stewards of that which has been entrusted to you. Because you know that what you have is the result of the work of another, one you love and respect and honor. And so to inherit the land comes with it inherent responsibility, to honor the one, the Lord, who has given this land to them. I mean, you have a bunch of nomads, right, with no military training at all. Any achievement in victory clearly comes because their God is with them. And yet, over time, they live as though it's their own. They live as though it's something that they have earned, that they deserve. And we, too, when we fail to remember that it is all of grace, we quickly become proud and divisive people. But in verse 7, and this is where we have this glimmer of hope again, it comes as this first generation worships the Lord, understanding that this land is a gift from Him. And then we read that Joshua lived to the ripe old age of 110, clearly an indication of the Lord's blessing upon him. And then as he dies, Joshua is buried within the borders of his inheritance. You see, even after his death, he still belongs to the Lord, the great King, the great judge, who in his persevering grace brings his people home to be with himself. Amazing comfort. So we see here again that the Lord is the principal character of this book. Preserving, governing, ruling, guiding His people. Therefore, there ought to be wholehearted obedience and devotion to God. As we saw in the narrative last week though, after the death of Joshua, things quickly deteriorate. And it's here in verse 10 that we have explicit reason why this apostasy of the people happened. Verse 10 really reflects what the overarching problem in the book of Judges is all about. Look at it again. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. Now I think the first question that we should try to answer is, so whose fault is it that this generation arises that has no concern for the Lord? Well it's not clear from the text whose fault it really is because I think the answer is both generations. Now there might be some that argue that the older generation is more culpable but the reality is there are two things going on. Parents and their failure to train their children to know and love the Lord their God and the failure of the next generation as they harden their hearts against the Lord. And so they both have their individual areas of responsibility. As parents, we need to think of our calling to train our children in the way in which they should go. As children, just because you're a child, that doesn't mean that you're off the hook. You are called to listen, to be teachable, to hunger, and to thirst for the truth of God's Word. And if you don't have children or if your children are out of the home, well, you're not off the hook either. Because we live in a covenant community. And every time we have the privilege of baptizing one of our covenant children, we take vows to assist those parents in the nurturing of that next generation. We are all charged with passing on that good deposit of truth to the next generation. And so very practically, we all have obligations to train our covenant children. Perhaps that means serving in the nursery... Perhaps that means teaching Sunday school, helping out with Kids Quest, or helping out with the youth ministry. It's not really an option for us to say, well, that's just not my gift. But it's a calling, you see, for each of us to serve and to invest in the lives of our children. We all have that responsibility. And no, Stephanie Terry did not tell me to say that. So no matter what stage of life you are in, you see, we all have responsibility to consider our obligations to the next generation. So what sort of commands does the parent have to train his child? Well, a great summary of parental responsibility is in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, if you'd like to turn there with me. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, acts as really what we could say as a confession of faith for the early covenant community. And when you think of the book of Deuteronomy, think of the whole book as a sermon... ...reminding the people who they are and who the Lord is... ...so that when they go into the land of promise, they will remain faithful to the Lord. Now the book of Judges, of course, is the historical narrative... ...recording the failure of the people to listen to the sermon from the Lord... ...and apply the things that He's telling them. So look here, Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4. "'Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one.' Now, this passage of Scripture in Hebrew is called the Shema, which is just taken from the first words of the passage. It is acted, as I said, as a confession of faith. The Hebrew children were taught these words as soon as they were able to speak. Now, we all know that child-rearing is at times a daunting task. It can create a lot of struggle and anxiety, worry and fear... I mean, marriage is hard enough as it is with two sinners learning to live together under the same roof. And then we think it's a good idea to intentionally bring little sinners into that same household. <laughs> but they're just further tools in God's process of sanctification. So that just means the more children you have, the more opportunity you have for sanctification. See, in parenting, I think we sometimes operate with this implicit belief that there is a right formula for success in parenting. Maybe it's a complicated formula, but nonetheless, it's out there for me to figure out. And if I can figure it out, then I will have godly children. And so there's tremendous pressure that parents perhaps put upon themselves. Perhaps pressure that we feel from the church community. Pressure that we feel from society to ensure that our children have every opportunity for success But I think the beauty of the Shema here in Deuteronomy 6 is really its simplicity. You see, we have it ingrained within us from a very young age that there is to be these two separate spheres of life. There's the private part of your sphere. That's where your religion belongs. That's where your Christian faith belongs. And then there's the public sphere. And you are not to bring the private into the public. That's where things like political laws and education and science and ethics belong. But what Deuteronomy 6 does is it says that all of life is to be brought under the authority of the Lord. And as you understand this more and more as parents, as you understand what it means to live under the authority of the Lord, there will be conversations you see that naturally flow in your relationships with your children. And notice the first crucial command from Deuteronomy 6, Love the Lord your God. You see, before we are ever in a position to teach our children the content of God's Word, we as parents must first be fostering a relationship of love with the Lord. So, the picture that we get here from Deuteronomy 6 is not some complex formula, it's very simple daily interaction between a child and a parent over the sacred truth of Scripture. It's not mechanical. It's not forced, it's not formulaic, it's simply growing in your love for the Lord and making the most of every opportunity that you have, putting cell phones away during dinner, turning off the music as you're dropping your children off at school in the morning, taking out the earbuds and talking about how the Lord is calling us to live in this world. But if we go on in Deuteronomy 6, we see that the covenant child has responsibility as well. Look down to verse 20 of that same chapter. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And so we're to envision, again, this natural conversation that occurs in the course of daily life. The parent is seeking to grow in love for the Lord God, striving to live by God's word. The parent is intentionally seeking to bring the truth of God's word to bear on every aspect of life. And the child, because this is what children do, is going to ask questions. And there will be natural conversation that flows. And this is the beauty, I think, of our catechisms, creating that back and forth dialogue, encouraging that conversation between parent and child. You see, the people of Israel... They are living in a crucial time in which there is constant bombardment from false teaching all around them. And we too live in a crucial time. And we have this example from Joshua toward the end of his life in chapter 24. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I don't care what anybody else says, we will serve the Lord. I don't care what the culture around me says, we will serve the Lord. And there were two areas of failure back in Judges chapter 2, verse 10. That they neither knew the Lord nor what He had done for them. That is, there was no understanding of who the Lord is in His mighty acts of redemption. And this knowledge is not just cognitive information. It's a knowledge that leads to obedience and devotion. No doubt they knew the history of their people, but that's all it was to them. was just historical facts, events that they took for granted. These were not truths that they loved. These were not promises that they cherished. They were not things that were precious or central to life. And what does this mean for us? Very simply, we need to make time to grow in our love for the Lord cultivating our relationship with the living God, serving Him, honoring Him, striving to make the most of our time in God's Word. The Puritans did a great job of helping their people understand the important principle of meditating upon biblical truths. And when they talked about meditation, it wasn't some Eastern notion of emptying the mind of everything, but meditation is being a preacher to yourself. Taking the truths of God's Word, stirring your heart, warming your affections, moving your will in obedience to the Lord to grow in love and affection for Him and hatred towards sin. Now, perhaps that looks like reading a short passage of Scripture each day, praying over the truths that you read. What does it teach me about the nature of the Lord? What does it teach me about myself and my need for the finished work of the Lord Jesus? taking the content of what you have read and praying over those truths, recalling it throughout your day, resolving even to take that one singular truth from God's Word and driving it deep, deep into your heart. I mean, we all know that life is busy. But as parents, or for any of us, at whatever stage of life we are in, we simply cannot allow the busyness of life to crowd out the importance of time in God's Word. The Puritan Samuel Davies said, What is your time given to you for? Is it not principally that you may prepare for eternity? And have you no time for what is the greatest business of your lives, the cultivation of your soul, and the souls of those whom you are charged with shepherding? Is there preparation of your own soul and of your family for eternity?" And second, as we go on in this text, we see, of course, that this is not some isolated event of rebellion, but there is a pattern of unfaithfulness in the children of Israel, abandoning the Lord in exchange for false worship. And what this shows us right off from the beginning is that we can't not worship. We are made as worshiping beings, and we will either worship and serve our Creator God, or we will worship and serve something in the creation Paul makes that abundantly clear in Romans chapter 1. What we see in these verses is the depth and the severity and the repetitive nature of their rebellion against the Lord. Notice how the text makes it clear. Verse 11, they did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Verse 12, they abandoned the Lord, the one who delivered them from slavery in Egypt, and now they are going after the false gods around them. Verse 13, they abandoned the Lord for the Baals and Ashtoreth, laying aside true worship for that which is false. Now, I think a natural question for us to ask is what was so enticing about these false gods that led them astray? Why do they seem to cave so quickly upon their entrance into the Promised Land? As we saw in Deuteronomy and in Joshua, you see, there is supposed to be this radical separation between the people of the Lord and those in the surrounding nations. But instead, there is quick accommodation. See, the predominant belief at this time of history is that there is a pantheon of gods who are limited to geographical regions of the land. And so you have gods of the highlands, of the lowlands, of the coastal regions, and of the seas... And Baal, the Baal that we read about at this time of history throughout Scripture, is the god of storms and fertility. And if you don't have fertility, then you very quickly die off as a people. Fertility in the form of children, fertility of crops and of livestock. And so for the Canaanites, Baal and Ashtoreth must be involved together in order for the rains to come and for fertility to result. And this led to temple prostitution as a form of their worship. Now one commentator wrote, and this is somewhat crass, but important for us to understand the seduction for the children of Israel. He writes, "...the idea was that the copulating of the worshiper and of the holy whore would encourage the divine couple, Mr. and Ms. Baal, to do their thing, and thus the rain, grain, wine, and oil would flow again." And so temple prostitution, you see, would be a way to encourage Baal to bless the people with the needed fertility of the land. But let's try to press this more. Why was this so enticing for the people of the Lord? They know that it was their God that delivered them. They know that He provided all of their needs for them in the time of their wilderness wanderings out in the desert. That was a much more hostile environment than this fertile land of Canaan. So why abandon him now in favor of these false gods? Well, no doubt there is the enticement of pleasure, the seduction of having one's lustful desires gratified as they see the allure of temple prostitution. Society as a whole is accepting of this promiscuous behavior and that's going to have its impact upon us. No parallel between then and our own time, is there? Further, the people probably reasoned to themselves, perhaps God was a geographical deity. And perhaps it was just that that land of the desert was the region in which He ruled over. But we're in a new land now. Perhaps this is not His territory. Shouldn't we just cover all of our bases to make sure we're coming into a land that is filled with fertility and it's people who are here worshipping this false god Baal. Obviously that worship is producing results. If our very life depends upon the fertility of the land, if our very life depends upon the stability of the economy, if we get that wrong, we're doomed to failure. And so they're being influenced by the ideology of the land. They're they're buying into the world's wisdom, into false theology, false teaching. But notice that this is not, again, an isolated event. The Lord delivers them over to the hand of their enemies as an act of discipline as he lovingly seeks to restore the people to himself. And yet, the people continue to rebel. Read in verse 17, they don't listen as that judge brings deliverance, but then he dies. That repetitive pattern happens throughout the entire book of Judges. But it's not just a repeating cycle of apostasy, of oppression, of crying out to the Lord, deliverance, and a time of peace and then renewed apostasy, but it's a downward spiral as things get worse and worse. The judges themselves become worse examples of what a true leader is supposed to be, but the people of the Lord become worse as well in their hardness of heart. And I think what we ought to see here is the frightening nature of sin within our own lives. How often do we too experience consequences for our sinful behavior? We cry out to the Lord and He forgives us. And yet we quickly fall back into that same habitual pattern. And it becomes more and more ingrained in our lives. We're like an addict to our own pleasure. And our hearts become harder and harder as we fail to see or don't want to see the sin within. And this is a problem of unfaithfulness that we could call idolatry. We see it here and we see it throughout the Old Testament... Generation after generation of Israelites struggling with the allure of idolatry. The people of God are called by His grace to be in a covenant relationship with Him. It is a relationship that is likened to a marriage relationship. And at times the Lord refers to Himself as the husband to His people. In such places as Isaiah 54, Ezekiel 16, and the book of Hosea a covenant, marital relationship between the Lord and His people. It is to be a relationship that is exclusive, and permanent, binding, public, a relationship that is growing in love, affection, and faithfulness. And so when the people of God worship these false gods, they are guilty of spiritual adultery. Now, idolatry is not some simple outdated Unlightened notion that we have progressed Beyond Idolatry is alive and well within the hearts Of each one of us You see they worshipped the Baals Because they wanted fertility They wanted control They wanted comfort They wanted predictability and security They wanted an investment That made good on its return They wanted the lust of their hearts Satisfied They wanted their senses tantalized Perhaps the Lord was not giving them what they wanted as quickly as they wanted it. And so they looked elsewhere. And in that, you see, they are no different than you or I. Perhaps we live as though we have made ourselves who we are today. Perhaps we puff ourselves up in our own morality, our own insight that makes us more perceptive than another. Perhaps we believe that our own diligence and work effort has led to success whether that's diligence in our work effort academically, vocationally, or athletically, at whatever point in life, you see, we set aside the grace and goodness of God and live as though we have gotten where we are because of our own achievement, as though we have made ourselves who we are. We are right there with the children of Israel, bowing to those false gods of our own making, a God that doesn't even exist, and a God that seeks to enslave us. You see, when we think that something in the created realm can give us security and safety, fulfillment, we are are there with the people of Israel. Anytime that we look to something or someone besides the Lord to give us what He alone can give, we are guilty of idolatry. And if our hearts are idol factories, as Calvin said, well, how do you go about identifying the idolatry within? Well, David Powlison, in his article... Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair, he says that one way to identify those idols within is to ask ourselves thoughtful, provoking questions to reveal our heart's functional trust. You see, we will spend hours upon hours each week investing in the financial stability of our life, but will we take time to give thoughtful consideration to the state of our own soul? And so you could start, Powelson says, by looking at your own thought life, what captivates my mind? What sorts of things do I have to exert no effort to think about, to fantasize about? Within those private recesses of my heart, what is it that brings me joy and comfort? You can consider how you spend your resources. How do I spend my time and my money? How do I view my time and my money as treasures for me to hoard? Do I see them as extensions of my identity, things that reflect my value and my worth? Jesus said in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where does my functional theology not line up with my confessional theology? Where do I get frustrated and discouraged with my circumstances or people in my life who don't do the things that I want them to do? What about when I pray to the Lord and things don't work out the way that I want? Where do I confess that I believe in the sovereignty of the Lord, but grumble and complain about my circumstances or the people that he puts into my life? And again, this takes thoughtful attention on our part to uncover the idols within. But you see, we're taking time to nurture our souls for eternity. and So all of life is worship. Lastly, how does the Lord respond to the foolishness of His people? Well, Remember last week in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2... ...we see that the Lord responds in both grace and judgment. Verse 1, He says, I will never break My covenant with you. In verse 2, you have broken My covenant... ...by entering into covenants with people of the land. And now there will be judgment. And we saw how it's ultimately in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that justice and holiness of the Lord is maintained and faithfulness, forgiveness rather, and grace and mercy is extended to God's people. And we see grace and judgment again here in verses 15 and 16. Verse 15, because of their rebellion, the Lord is handing them over to their enemies who will defeat them. Verses 16 and 18, then the Lord is moved to pity and He raises up judges to save them. And notice that it is the Lord who is against His people in discipline. And it is the same Lord who raises up judges to deliver them. Judgment and grace. Discipline and mercy. And I think we can begin to understand what the Lord is doing as we consider the anger of the Lord. As it is mentioned throughout this passage in verses 12, 14, and 20. I'm afraid that oftentimes in our culture we often equate tolerance with love. But tolerance is not at all love. Tolerance is actually indifference, which is worse than hatred. You see, anger is put on display when the love of our hearts is threatened. For example, I might get angry when things don't go the way that I want because I want control. My love for control is being threatened, and so I get angry when the love of my heart is in jeopardy. But the anger of the Lord is directed toward His people because of His love for them and His love for His glory. He is a jealous God who has every right to demand fidelity and faithfulness from His people. And He is angry at their adulterous hearts which they have given in affection to another." And what I'm convinced that we are meant to see from this book of Judges is the unchanging nature of the Lord. No matter how bad things get in this book, no matter how pessimistic things might appear to be from a human perspective, it is the Lord and His relentless grace that we are meant to see. And so when we read these narratives in the Old Testament... And we see the failures of Israel again and again and again. The temptation for us might be to get exasperated with them. What is their problem? Do they not know how gracious God has been to them? Do they honestly believe that they received this inheritance because of some effort in their own lives? Why are they so stupid? As though it's an issue of intelligence or lack of information. And if we think like that, the temptation for us might be to look down upon them because of our own pride and our own morality and our own enlightenment. On the other hand, as you see your own heart exposed, as you see yourself there right along with the children of Israel acknowledging that, you know, if I was there, I would have done the exact same thing. Then you begin to see perhaps the same patterns in your own life, the same failures, the same spiraling into weakness... But the temptation there could be to plunge yourself into discouragement because you can't seem to get rid of that struggle in life. But as you see your weakness, as you see your desperate need for God's grace, then the book of Judges is accomplishing its purpose. Working humility, dependence, gratitude within, as you understand that you are living vicariously through another, through the Lord Jesus. See, if you think that the message of the book of Judges is learn from their mistakes so that you won't fall into the same pattern of sin and disobedience, then you're still not seeing your sin with clarity. Instead, as you see the depth of your own sin, you will begin to understand more fully your utter helplessness and your need for grace alone someone writing on this book of Judges says, "'No earthly leader can save. "'No earthly leader can possibly provide "'the adequate leadership and deliverance "'that we need as finite, sinful, weak, immature people. "'God raises up patriarchs, but they fail. "'He raises up priests, but they are inadequate. "'God gives them judges, but they can't save.' God provides a king, but no human king could ever deliver. God gives prophets, but no human prophet can save them. God would let this sinful people who were determined not to rely on him, to rely on every other possible means until every other possible means is exhausted. Finally, they would learn that the only one who could save them was God himself. And then they would turn to him. This is what the book of Judges is meant to do for us as well. And you see, as you read this book and you see this downward spiral, you are meant to get emotionally and morally exhausted. You are meant to despair of trusting in anyone else to save you than the Lord Jesus. May the Lord be pleased to take the eternal truth of his word and write it upon our hearts.